Yeah, the visible saints are here. The invisible saints are not here. So, real excited to jump back into uh, kind of more this morning, getting more into the that second point, looking at uh, George Swinnick's little book, The Incomparableness of God. Some points I want to tease out there. Remember, just you know where we were last three weeks. Who exactly? I think we have a good historical theological foundation. Who we're talking about. And then finally, you know, the main thing, what we want to talk about, what can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? Just a quick recap, those principles, really guiding what's going on here. Critique of idolatry encompassed the whole of Catholic worship. They did not like the Roman Catholics. Uh, Number two, an understanding of divine revelation is fixed or constant. God's word did not change. High praise for the church on earth, a rediscovery of the primacy of the local congregation. Point four, discipline. This is what we, the three we looked at last week. Discipline is a necessary feature of the Christian community, um, kind of that mutual uh, responsibility the church has towards one another, um, local church discipline, mutual care. Number five, evangelical and social activism, predicated on transforming self, church, and society, uh, pursuit of holiness in all aspects of life, the self, the church, and society, um, mainly focusing on those, those first two, and then divine providence and apocalypticism. Again, I don't think they're end times or views that were that really that central, but they were important. Clearly divine providence and God's sovereignty. Then looked at some of those central motifs, um, some of these central things, covenant theology, that was pretty much the main way they would organize scripture, how it all moves forward. Number two, sin. They wrote a lot about sin because they hated sin. I don't think there's anyone better when it comes to dealing with and fighting sin than the Puritans. And so we'll spend two weeks on that actually really with John Owen. I mean, it's just excellent. Cannot praise it enough. Super helpful. Um, faith and repentance, doctrine of salvation, assurance of faith, uh, the law, how they understood the law. We've ended with kind of this whole, you know, what we would kind of say is kind of the central aspect of salvation, how they would break it down systematically, really basing it on Romans chapter 8. Predestination, uh, effectual calling, justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, And so those who are called, really just basing off of this, of of, uh, Romans chapter 8, those who are predestined, they are called. Those who are called, they are justified. There's not a person who is called who is not justified. There's not a person who's justified and then falls out of justification, right? This is the security, uh, the perseverance of the saints. Those who are justified are then sanctified. If you're not being sanctified, there's a decent chance that maybe you weren't justified. So you're constantly working with those. Uh, Glorification, all those who are justified, sanctified will eventually be glorified. And so we can finally move to that second point, which I was talking about. What can they contribute to your everyday walk with the Lord? What can we learn from them in our own process of sanctification? I think it all begins with what we think about God, okay? What we think about God. A.W. Tozier, I disagree with him on some things, but he was really right. Maybe you guys have heard this before. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's true. Um, And the Puritans are very helpful in helping us think deep biblical thoughts about God. And this is helpful. I I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but I'm a fix-it guy, okay? So, like, if I've got—if there's an issue with the family, you know, relational dynamic that's askew, I sinned, or my wife sinned. My wife never sins. Um, But, you know, if it's um, me—well, she's not in here, so I didn't need—no, I'm just kidding. Um, Just kidding. No, you guys understand, right? We're sinning against one another. I'm very much like, okay— I'm fixing this right now. Like, if there's relational strife, let's fix it, okay? I'm really easy to quick to run to that. You know, if it's an anger problem, anxious thoughts, you know, 
Whatever the sin problem is, you know, you go, okay, I need to stop doing this. I need to start doing this. That's typically what I do. I think it's actually helpful. Most fundamentally, we need to go back to, okay, in this situation, how am I thinking about God? I mean, that's how you actually need to address that situation, is that situation in relationship to God. You always need to go there. Sin can only be understood rightly in its relationship to God, and therefore we must rightly understand and know him. But I kind of wanted to take a little detour before we get to the incomparableness of God. What does it mean to know something? What do you guys think? What does it mean? This is not a trick question. What does it mean to know something? It's like, oh, this is a trick question, even if he said it isn't. Be familiar with, okay? Okay. Invested some time in it. Okay. There's no wrong answers. You know, judge-free zone here. Anything else? It's one thing to know in your brain and another thing to experience it. Oh, okay. One thing to know in your brain, one different to experience it, or maybe live it out, right? You could... If you know something well, does that mean that it's like you um, are an expert in it? Like, I know it. Like, I'm an expert. It's your truth. It's whatever. <laughs> that, that can be your truth. No, no, I'm just kind of teasing. But I think it's helpful to kind of step back here. Knowledge in the sense of, I think typically, if we say, oh, I know something, typically I think in our day and age, 21st century, we think of typically mental comprehension. Okay, like I understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Although next year, I don't know, it might not, um, judging by the way things are going, right? I know that this is this, okay? I understand. Mentally, I can comprehend that. I would argue that's not really how the Bible defines knowledge, okay? It does mean that, but it means much more than that, okay? Uh, knowledge is something that engages all of our faculties. I mean, you guys can even think of, I mean, even just think about this. Adam knew his wife, and she had a son. Like, is that just like he mentally comprehended his wife? No, right? Like, I'm, I'm not going to explain that anymore. But it means a lot more than that, okay? Uh, this is some type of intimate knowledge, right? Unlike any other. Or think about I mean, this is the, I mentioned this last week. You know, we're singing a new song, I Want to Know You. Notice what uh, Paul says here. I read this. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice what he says again, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I mean, you can almost even picture, you know, the church in Philippi. They're like, Paul, what on earth are you talking about? Like, know Jesus? Like, you already know him, obviously. Like, you mentally comprehend who he is. That's not what they're saying, right? No, they actually get what Paul is saying here is a greater than mental comprehension knowledge, that there's something more going on here. I think what Paul is saying is when he's saying that I would continue to know Christ Jesus my Lord more, he's saying that he would know, he would understand, he would love, he would obey, that it would change his whole life. Does that make sense? It's not just a mental abstract fact, okay? And this makes sense, right? Um, I was going to mention this later, but, you know, James 2.19, you know, it's like, you believe that God is one, right? You do well. Even the demons believe, right? And are demons saved? No, right? 
but they know that God is God, right? They have a mental comprehension that God is God, but there is something missing there. And so this gets to another central aspect of Puritan theology. I put this on your notes. I've talked about this a lot in other equipping hour classes I've done, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Um, I'd be more than happy to talk to you afterwards. But um, this is, I think, where they're really helpful. What I would say, they refer to the heart a lot of times in Puritan literature and sermons, and they're talking about all these things, okay? I think when we talk about heart, we're mainly, mainly thinking of, like, feelings, you know, listen to your heart, great song by Roxette from the 80s, right? Don't listen to your heart, by the way. But that's typically what we think about. It's like, oh, your feelings, okay? Typically, actually, when they're talking about heart, they're talking about all this, okay? So mind understanding or your thinker, okay? Like, I mentally understand this. I can comprehend this, okay? We on board here? We get that one. But also, they stress the importance of what they call a lot of times the affections, okay? I like this word a lot better than emotions or feelings um, because... They talk about cultivating affection. Sometimes we say, I'm just a product of my emotions. I'm just the way I am because I just feel this way because of chemical processes and all this stuff. Uh, I would say, no, like you actually have to cultivate affections. You need to grow to hate sin more and you need to grow to love Christ more, right? And so, you know, some of the, some of the main affections, love and hate and kind of how they're expressed, you know, desiring something, delighting in it, um, hate right? You know, dreading something, sorrow, you know. So these are kind of like anticipating it, you know, anticipate, you know, I want this something. This is actually experiencing it, right? Experiencing love, you're delighting in it, dread, oh, I'm afraid of something, I don't want this sorrow. That's actually experiencing what was feared. Um, And then ultimately the will, right? And this is actually really helpful, because I don't know if you guys are anything like me. I know the right thing, right? I know I should not sin, but I still sin. (laughs) It's not that I have bad information, I have all the right information. The problem is, is actually somewhere in here. I'm not hating my sin as I ought to. I'm not loving the Lord as I ought to. Or my will is just defective. I'm just simply not doing it. Um, And so typically, I think that's a helpful way. And you'll see this. If you read the Puritans, you'll see this everywhere. I remember for me, it took me a while to kind of get used to it. They'll talk about, you know, the understanding, the mind. It's, you know, the chief faculty of the will and the affections. You know, they follow in the will. I'm like, oh, I never heard this type of language before, but it's actually really, really helpful. Um, and so I would argue when we talk about, I go back to that question, you know, what does it mean to know something? I think ultimately this is what we're talking about when all of these are engaged, right? The immaterial part of you. So I talk, you know, the three faculties of your soul. We're not talking about the body. We're talking about that part of you that you can't see and touch, right? You can't t- I mean, you can touch your brain, but you can't touch your thinking processes, Right? your uh, affections you can't touch. We're talking about that immaterial part. All of these need to be engaged to truly understand and know something is what I would argue. And now, I just want to say this real quick. We'll move on. I'm not saying that at conversion, you need to be conscious of all these things. I'm not saying that. not saying that at all. Because sometimes, you know, you just believe by faith and sometimes, you know, your feelings, your affections just aren't there. Sometimes you're having trouble actually carrying things out in the will. I'm not saying that. I'm saying in progressive sanctification, as you grow in your walk with the Lord, you're going to realize more and more, oh, yeah, this actually makes sense, right? I'm having a love problem here. I'm not hating sin as I ought. I'm not loving the Lord as I ought. Does that make sense? So don't, don't be distraught if your affections aren't what you want them to be. And I would just say this, too. 
Someone asked this in a, in a class, and I thought it was really helpful. You know, a guy was talking about, you know, dealing with, um, you know, struggling with assurance because he didn't have affections. He didn't feel like, you know, he was loving the Lord as he ought. And the, the professor answered back, he's like, being discontent with your lack of affection actually is a sign of affection. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, if you're, ah, I don't love the Lord as I ought, well, that's good, right? Like, that actually is. So, you know, it's like, there's nothing good out of this. It's like, actually, there is, right? You know, so take heart, be encouraged. Um, so that's just to, to tease that out. So true knowledge engages our minds. It engages our affections. It engages our will such that there's true heart knowledge leading to obedience and worship. Okay? just want to preface this. We'll get into this with, with Owen next week. Knowing God, knowing the triune God is the knowledge of all knowledge. Okay? This is where it starts. Owen writes, in communion with God. Notice what he does here. The sum of all true wisdom and knowledge may, may be reduced to these three heads. So it's like of all the things to know, it's like these three things are the things to know. That's what he's saying there. Okay? Track with me? So like he thinks they're important. Okay? Number one, the knowledge of God, his nature, his property. So number one, knowing God. That is the most important thing. Number two, the knowledge of ourselves in reference to the will of God concerning us. What he's saying there is most important thing is knowing God. Second most important thing is knowing ourselves in relation to our knowledge of God, right? And I love this third point, skill to walk in communion with God. And that's really the basis of his whole book on communion with God. But what he's saying is like, you can't just leave knowledge here. Okay, yes, I know God. I understand him. Okay, I know myself. He's actually, hey, you got to live it out. Actually having the right skills and abilities to walk in communion with the triune God. And really here, if you guys, has anyone here read John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Faith, Christian Religion? Okay. It's really important. I have even read it myself. I've dabbled in parts of it. But kind of a fundamental Christian theology textbook, if you want to say that. This is in the, in the 16th century. So John Calvin's one of the reformers. Remember we talked about Martin Luther? Well, his buddy, John Calvin, okay, they're homies, right? And they're doing the work of the Reformation. Luther's doing all kinds of other stuff. Calvin was much more of a, just a systematic preacher, thinker, theologian, all that stuff. He writes one of the foundational theology books called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, I think. And the very first two points are Owen's same two points. What's the most important thing to know? Knowledge of God. And what's tied to that? Knowledge of ourselves. Okay, and so you see this link between Calvin and Luther and the Puritans. They're all just quoting each other because they're all quoting the Bible. They're all just building it off of that. Okay, and so this is the fountainhead of all theology. It starts with and flows from the knowledge of God. And that's Swinnick's goal in his book, which, by the way, this is the giveaway today. So, you know, if you guys like what we're going to say in the next 25 minutes, you might want to raise your hand pretty quick. Uh, The incomparableness of God. Swinnick's goal is for the reader to know, to enjoy, and love the incomparable God, okay? This is not a dry theology of God. Like, this is very, very practical. That's what he's trying to do. Before we jump in, I know I said we finished the history. I, I, you just got to sprinkle it in a little bit here, okay? George Swinnick, who is this guy? What was he doing, okay? We actually don't have a really good picture of him. So just so you guys know, like, not all Puritan pastors were super famous. Were they all their picture painted, okay? So, like, that's, like, the best one I could find. I don't even know if he looked like that. Like, I just, it was the first image that popped up on Google Images. So I don't even know. That might not even be him. It might be some other guy. But I'm pretty sure that's him. George Swinnick. Uh, he graduated from Cambridge and served as a chaplain and preacher at Cambridge, then in Oxford. Remember, those are those two main pastor's colleges in England while the Ref- uh, Protestant, excuse me, the English 
Protestant Reformation and the work of the Puritans is going on, okay? Um, he goes to Oxford, Cambridge. He graduates from there. He's pastoring around that area. Here's some cool pictures. In 1660, uh, he's appointed pastor of Great Kimball, that's his church here, in Buckinghamshire. It's a great name. I wish that's where we lived, right? Buckinghamshire, a little further outside London. Um, the church, from my understanding, I think I did a little bit of history. This was rebuilt, I think, in the 1800s, but it would have looked, you know, something like this. She's kind of, I like history. I think this is kind of cool. Like, you see, like, oh, okay, this is what going to church looked like in 1600s, right? This is what they did. Similar to what we did. We went to church. We sat in pews or chairs, and we listened to people singing, or we sang together. We heard the word preach, all that stuff. So he's there only for a little bit uh, in 1660. Because remember, what happens in 1662? Anyone remember? The great ejection, okay? Charles II, he comes to the throne, and he says, hey, Pastors, conform. Do exactly what I tell you to, or you're going to lose your pulpits. And over 2,000 Puritan pastors say, we're not going to do that. And so they start preaching underground, basically. They go, they're not the official church anymore. He starts preaching pretty much for the rest of his life. This probably would have been a typical meeting house. Um, this is actually one of the main places he met. I have the name here somewhere. Um, yeah, he was the personal chaplain to the Hampton family. They'd meet in this building here, kind of like, as I said, an unauthorized uh, church. I would say this too, I don't know if I mentioned this, this was very common post-1662. So sure, there was persecution, but it varied. You know, kind of like, it's kind of like even, you think of America, right? Like, we have a Democrat president right now, okay? And if you're just looking at America big picture, people would say, oh, they're liberal, right? Yeah, but then you go to like Wyoming or something, it's like, that's pretty conservative, right? Or you go to Alabama, they're real conservative, right? You know, it's like, there's different pockets, okay? It's the same thing with England, right? You know, you've got differing areas where the local ruler is, okay, you know, you can do what you want, and I'm not going to put you in prison. Does that make sense? So there's, there's differing levels of persecution and toleration. And so he preaches pretty much for the rest of his life. This book was published in 1672, a year before he died. It's a collection of sermons. Pretty much always with the Puritans, the books we have are their sermons that they edited and put into book form. The whole book is based on this one verse. The whole book, okay? For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? Psalm 89.6. I'm going to close this door real quick. This is very typical for the Puritans, okay? That they would take one verse and just wring that thing completely dry. Like just, we're going to get every single doctrine and application and use out of this thing. And it's cool. I don't know if I would call it expositional preaching. Because there comes a point where it's just like, you're just quoting so many other things. You're not preaching that verse anymore. You're preaching the whole Bible, okay? Um, I'd call it more theological preaching. I think it's, there's a time and place to do that. I have to mention a historical anecdote here. Joseph Carl, okay? I think that's how you say his last name. This guy is a pastor in one of the most prominent churches in London during this Puritan period. Listen to this. Over a 24-year period, he preached 424 sermons all on the book of Job. From my understanding is it was a fire series. I mean, it was just, that was my joke there. It was, it was, it was lit. It was really good. Uh, so just bear in mind, give, give Mark some grace if it's a couple years in Exodus, okay? Like, at least we're not spending 24 years in the book of Job, okay? 420. Of all the books to preach, too, like Job, man, 424 sermons. Like, that is nuts. Um, Spurgeon said on this, it was funny, he said, Carl must have inherited the patience of Job to have completed his stupendous task. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's true, right? Uh, so all this is to say, there's a balance in your preaching, okay? Uh, 
I think that was a little much. And I think when we see him in heaven, he might say, I think I overdid it a little bit. Um, so that's just an aside. Back to Swinnick. Okay. Back to Swinnick. Notice this is um, the, in his introduction. Notice the link he's making here. He writes, it is certain that our happiness in the other world will consist in large part in our perfect knowledge of the blessed and boundless God. And it is certain that our holiness in this world does not a little depend, in other words, he's saying it depends greatly upon, our knowledge of him whose name alone is excellent. So notice what he's saying. Not only is there a link between our knowledge of God and our eternal destiny, right? There is, right? Without knowing the Lord, without trusting in and repenting and trusting in Christ alone, your eternal destiny is on the line, right? It is heaven or hell. That's true, okay? And that's most important. But he's also making a link that there's a connection between our knowledge of God and, what do you say, our holiness in this world, right? So if you're thinking through, okay, how do I live a more God-pleasing, God-centered, God-honoring life where I'm growing in holiness? What do I need to do? Rather than thinking, okay, I need to focus on all these other things, he's saying you need to start with your knowledge of God. That is actually going to impact how you live in this life. And so you see right at the start, he's attempting to emphasize the practical aspects of meditating on God, okay? It's not that we just, you know, study the attributes of God just so we know these things. Mentally, we comprehend them. That's true. But he's saying we mentally comprehend them so that they change the way we live. Does that make sense? I think that's vital. Even just a principle you take. When I'm studying the word, it's not just to mentally comprehend things. It's so that I live differently. Every time we open the Bible, that is the goal. Studying God's nature, his attributes, it should never be dry. If you've got a systematic theology textbook and it's just boring you in the attributes of God, that's a bad theology book. You want a book that warms your heart to love the Lord more. And so he takes this verse, Psalm 89.6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord and begins to showcase Here's how the Lord is incomparable. If nothing and no one can be compared to him, let's actually tease that out. How is he incomparable? Well, and these are the points on your handout here. God is incomparable in his very essence or being, okay? In who he is. Psalm 148 verse 13 says that his name alone is excellent or exalted. As we'll learn when Mark gets to Exodus uh, chapter 3 verse 14, God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am who I am. God's name reveals who he is. It is his nature. It is his essence. It is his attributes. This is who he is. And there is no one comparable to me. So when it quotes here, Isaiah 40, verses 15 and 17, just listen to this. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Listen to verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They're like nothing before the Lord. They're accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So he essentially says, if we could understand the world and all of its creation as anything less than absolutely nothing, which is like impossible for us to do, then we would understand all things in comparison to God. It's just not possible in terms of who God is and the excellence of his nature. We cannot fully and truly comprehend him completely. The only thing that can be completely known about God is that we cannot completely know him, right? That is what scripture reveals. And so he starts here dealing with God's incommunicable attributes. It's a fancy word basically for just saying attributes that there's not really any type of similarity or analogy to mankind, right? So we talk about God is good, okay? And that's one of his perfections, one of his attributes. Well, there is some goodness in us, right? Right? Like that you can do a morally good thing. We understand the attribute of goodness. But like perfection, like 
none of us are perfect, right? It's incommunicable in that extent. So I just want to work through some of these. Number one, he is independent. How is he incomparable? Well, he's incomparable in the fact that he is independent. I'm going to go through these quickly. Angels, humans, and all other things are created, right? We derive our existence from another, right? Acts 17, 28, for in him we live, move, and have our being. All of creation, down to the smallest thing, to the greatest thing, any of it, the smallest atom, the greatest angel, we are entirely dependent on God. We are derivative beings. None of us is of ourselves, right? But the Lord is. He is entirely independent. He's entirely of himself, from himself, for himself. All things were created by him and for him, right? Colossians chapter 1. God has made all things, even the wicked, for the day of evil, as Proverbs 16 says. He is holy and completely, according to his good pleasure and wisdom, everything is done for his own glory, right? He is independent. Whereas we, and this is what you do here too, you're studying the attributes and you're studying who he is, and you realize how we are the exact opposite. He is completely independent. We are entirely dependent, right? You think, oh, I'm in America, man. Like, Declaration of Dependence, man. We're dependent. It's like you are dependent on breathing, like, all the time, right? You are dependent on the sun coming up, right? Like, we are dependent on everything. You are not as independent as you actually think, okay? Number one, he is independent. Number two, he's perfect. Some of these are just hard to understand. God is incapable of the least increase or decrease, right? Like nothing can be added to or taken away from his being, right? Swinnick says on this, as our holiness does not help him, so our sinfulness does not hurt him. I say so many times Swinnick says, it's kind of like serving says from Family Feud, I don't know, it just cracks me up. Swinnick says, right? As our holiness does not help him, so our sinfulness does not hurt him. We cannot alter who he is, right? As he is perfect in and of himself, we are the complete opposite. We stand in continual need each and every moment. He needs nothing. He alone is perfect. He is universal. What he means here is that of all the excellencies, all the attributes or perfections, as we call them, that can be found in creation, they are in him in an infinite manner, okay? So not only is God one single good, he's all good, right? Of all these things, they are in him in an infinite manner. Whatever goodness we have is derived from him. It's a small, mere, poor shadow of the goodness that is in him. There's no one person that is all good. We might have some. God is all good in every good thing. It's the same thing with beauty. It's the same thing with holiness. It's the same thing with righteousness. He is unchangeable. He is incapable of the least alteration. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. James 1.17 says, There is no variableness or shadow due to change in the Father of lights. Whenever God punishes a sinful man for their sin, he doesn't change. And then when that sinful man turns from his sin, he still doesn't change. The change is actually in the person. God is unchanging. He gives this illustration of a person walking on one side of a building and the columns on their left side. And then he says, the other person, you know, a person walks on the same side and the column's on the right. The column doesn't move. What's moving is actually the person. It's the same thing with the sun, right? You know, you guys know this, right? Like the sun is actually there and like the earth is what's moving, right? But to us, it looks like, you know, the sun is rising. Oh, the sun is changing. The sun actually isn't changing, right? It's the same thing with God. God is unchangeable. We are the ones who alter and move as the unchangeable one changes us, right? He is the one 
who is unchangeable. He is eternal. God has no beginning. He has no succession. He has no end. In the beginning, even before time was created, God existed. He stands outside of time. He's not bound by time. I find this fascinating. We can't even fathom that. But he created time, right? He is outside of it. He's not bound by it. You could say that he is what he is in one infinite moment of being, okay? His essence is not bound to or by time, as Isaiah 57, 15 says. It says he inhabits eternity. What does that look like? I have no idea. It's because we can't. That's the whole point of it being incommunicable. What does it mean that he's eternal? Well, we're finite. By definition, we're not going to understand completely the infinite. But Scripture reveals that he inhabits and lives in eternity. As Exodus 3.14 says, you know, I am who I am. Well, in John 8.58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Remember that, right? Jesus is claiming that he is the same God that was revealed to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. That is who he is. I really like what he says on this. He says, on that phrase, before Abraham was, I am, it sounds like false, false grammar, but it's proper theology, right? It sounds weird, like I am who I am, or before Abraham was, I am. The grammar doesn't sound right, but that's true theology. God is who he is. He is simple. He is simple. Maybe this is one you're like, what? Simple? Nothing about this sounds simple, right? Divine simplicity, that doctrine does not mean that God is a simpleton, okay? Or that he is easy to understand. It does not mean that, okay? What the doctrine of divine simplicity means is that God is not a composition of parts, okay? God is not the sum of all his attributes when you add them all up. It's not that God is 25% holy, and then he's 15% righteousness, 10% good, 5% wrath. And when you bundle all those things up, that's what you have, and that's God, okay? That is not true. The doctrine of divine simplicity says that God is an unmixed, indivisible essence that does not have parts. He's, you know, a simple illustration is like a Lego tower or any type of Lego construction, you know, a bunch of different pieces. That's not who God is. Kevin DeYoung, which if you're like, this one's difficult for me. I have a really good four-minute video by Kevin DeYoung where he explains this way better, okay? It's really, really simple. Um, Ah, pun intended. He's simple. Uh, God is, this is what DeYoung says, God is whatever he has. Every single attribute he has is identical with his essence, okay? simple way you could describe it is like this. God is not only wise, he is wisdom, okay? God is not only loving, he is love, right? God is not only, you know, righteous, he is righteousness. Does that make sense? And you can't also, you know, separate his attributes. Okay, it's like now he's acting in a wrathful way uh, and not in a loving way. No, his wrath is loving. His righteousness is holy. They're both, they're all working together. Does that make sense? There's no act that is separate from his, uh, his other attributes, you might say. His justice is his mercy. His wisdom is his patience. His love is his holiness. His wrath is his justice. That is what it means when we talk about God, uh, the simplicity of God. Number seven, he is infinite. God is not shut in or out of any place. He is boundless. 1 Kings 8, 27, Solomon, after he builds a temple, he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. He fills all things. He's infinite. While we are incredibly finite, right? We're bound body, space, and time. We are in one place. We don't have infinite knowledge. We have very limited knowledge. I mean, all these attributes, you just see how unlike God you are, right? Like, 
You can't claim any of these things, right? You're changing all the time. You're not eternal, right? You are definitely not universal, right? Number eight, he is incomprehensible. The finite can never fully comprehend the finite, infinite, sorry. So when it says on this, the sun may, contain, may be contained in a small crack and the sea in a shell sooner than God may be contained in the limited understanding of men and angels. He's like, if you can take the sun and, you know, put it in this little crack in the wall, then you can understand God completely. No, he is incomprehensible. And so that's just the incommunicable attributes, okay? That's like the first 30 pages of this book, okay? And he's just devotionally meditating on all these things. And the goal, I hope even as you guys are thinking about this, is your heart stirred just a little bit? Like, whoa, the greatness of who our God is. And that's what he's trying to do. He moves on. He's trying to get us lost in the being and character of God. It's as we delight in and meditate and love him, it boggles our minds that we want to delight in and grow in our knowledge of him and obey him more. He moves to the communicable attributes. Just want to highlight some of these. On God's power... These are just some quotes on God's power. He says, if I speak of strength and ability to contend and fight. Notice what he does here. Again, grammar is different because, you know, this is 17th century, 1600s. You know, lo, behold, wonder. Like, here's what he's saying, like, look at this, okay? Think about this. Here is one that is strong indeed, that never contends, but he prevails, who never combats, but he conquers. He is strong indeed. God never contends without prevailing. Like, he never goes into a fight and is like, I'm not sure about this one, right? Like, he knows that he's just, it's like nothing to him, right? He never combats without conquering. He is unbeatable, right? Like, he is this invincible champion, you know? Like, you think of, like, these undefeated football teams or undefeated sports. It's like, that's even a horrible comparison to who God is. Like, he just, it's not even a chance. He is unbeatable. It is, uh, he says later, he is a God that never met with a difficulty, much less with an impossibility. Like, there are a lot of things that are difficult for me, right? Like, like it's just like, that's going to be hard, right? Waking up at a certain time, right? Doing all these push-ups or whatever, right? That's difficult, okay? But for him, it's like, nothing's even difficult. And there are a lot of things that are just impossible, right? Like, if you gave me, you know, 400 pounds to squat right now, it's not, it's not even difficult. It's impossible. It is not happening, no matter how hard I try. It is not happening, not so with God. Like, and that's the thing. I've, I've seen this, you know, preacher. He's talking about, you know, he used that same, you know, benching weight. And he's like, you know, you put a couple plates on, you know, I can go down. You know, you couple, put a couple more. I'm struggling. You know, you get up to 300 pounds. I'm not, I'm not going down because I'm not coming back up, right? He's like, you know, Jesus, you can just put all the weight in an infinite manner. And he's not even breaking a sweat. It's just amazing on God's power, on God's knowledge. God's knowledge is so perfect that it cannot increase or decrease. God never learns anything. You know, like the adage, like you learn something new every day. Not with God, right? Like he learns nothing. He knows all things. He's, I find this fascinating and I love this. God is never surprised by anything. We surprise ourselves all the time. Like, whoa, like I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I lashed out in that way. That was wicked. That was evil. God never reacts that way to your sin. Isn't that a comforting thought? Like, he never learns anything. Before, um, let me read this here. Before he created the curious frame of the world, he knew all the rooms and furniture in it, all the motions and actions of all the inhabitants of it. He does by one pure, simple, undivided, eternal act of his understanding know all things perfectly, immediately, distinctly, every moment. In his perfect and infinite knowledge, he is never deceived or disappointed. He's never surprised. He's never taken off guard. On God's mercy, 
God's mercy, he has a hand that is not only able to supply. This is very helpful when you think about the gospel. God is not only able to be merciful because he is mercy, but he's also willing. Like if, it was, if God was able to be merciful, we'd still be toast, right? Because he has to actually exercise his mercy, right? So he has a hand not only to supply, God also has a heart that is able to supply. And he's willing to show mercy and he wants to. Here's a good quote here. It, mercy, is an attribute which relates to the creature only. God knows himself and loves himself and God glorifies himself, but he's not merciful to himself, right? God cannot, by definition, be merciful to himself. He he cannot be. Um, He says, it, talking about mercy, is an attribute that relates to the creature in misery. Justice seeks a worthy object. Grace is exercised towards an unworthy object. But mercy looks out for a needy and indignant, that means poor, object. And that is exactly who we are. I've barely scratched the surface on this. I want to end with how he applies all this doctrine. How he applies it on the malignity of sin, the evilness of sin. When we look at this incomparable God, we see the evil nature of sin. He talks about how, you know, the greater an object is, the greater the sin is against it, right? So, you know, think about this. Like, if you get an old shirt dirty when you're painting, it's no big deal, because that's why you wore that shirt in the first place. It's an old shirt. But, like, if you stain, like, your brand new suit or, like, your wedding dress, like, whoa, that's a big deal. It's the same action happened. They just both got dirty, okay? Same thing with like a car. Like if you put a dent in my 2007 Toyota Yaris, it's no big deal. It's a piece of junk anyways, okay? But if you put a dent, you know, in like a 2023 Lamborghini, like, whoa, it's a big deal. Even if it's just a little dent, that's huge, right? So sin affects, is, you know, we have to understand it in relation to the object sinned against. Does that make sense? So he talks about this, talks about sin. How much greater then is it if we sin and dishonor and disobey and curse the incomparable God? By definition, that sin is incomparable, right? We cannot compare sin against God to anything else. It is ridiculous. He has a great quote here. All sin is God murder. The sinner hates God, Romans 1.30, and hatred ever wishes and, as it is able, works the destruction of its object, right? The fullness of anger and hatred is what? Murder, killing it. You wish that object did not exist, which is why Jesus says, you know, if you even look at anger, um, you know, with your, uh, you know, against your brother in your heart. You've committed murder in your heart, right? That's the end of sin if it had its way. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. In other words, it is a pleasing thought to him to suppose that there were no God. He goes on to talk about the madness and absolute just stupidity of sin um, and sinners who sin against God, who he has this language of God can wink you to hell if he wants to, right? And we, yet we sin against him. And I just said this, I already kind of mentioned this. If God is incomparable, then the loss of him is incomparable. That, that is the greatest evil that can ever befall a person, is actually losing God. Yes, there are a lot of bad things that happen in the world. There's a lot of sin. The worst evil is losing God. If he's incomparable, the loss of him is incomparable. Just if you're wondering, you know, not everything of his application is on sin, but he does talk about sin a lot because that's the problem we have. On the folly of pride... If God is incomparable, then how prideful are sinners who prefer anything other than this incomparable God? He has a great quote here on providence, which will just kick you in your teeth. He that complains of God's dealings undertakes to teach God in what manner and by what means the world should be governed. Right? Like, complaining, like, <laughs> complaining is wicked, okay? And I think complaining, just knowing me, it is easy to complain, and we need to put that sin to death. Because we are complaining to God and saying, your perfect plan is wrong. 
Okay? God's ways are often secret. His paths are in the seas and his goings in deep waters. We can't understand everything that God is doing until after the fact, right? And because men cannot fathom them, hey, we can't figure it out, then therefore there must, you know, we find fault with them. There's something wrong. God, you don't have it figured out. And that is incredibly prideful. And he ends here with the sanctifying power of knowing God. Remember, where did he start? He started with, you know, knowing God impacts our holiness, our walk with the Lord right now, right? That's what he's saying. Well, and this is where he ends. He says, the knowledge of God, it purifies the soul. It renders sin abominable. We hate God. Knowing God makes us hate that sin. He's a great quote here on Job 42. And this is the quote from 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of your, the end of Job, you know, the very, very end, when Joseph Carl got there after 24 years, right? <laughs> uh, this is how he ends. But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The more we know, this is his quote, the more we know the greatest good, the more we shall hate the greatest evil. The more you know and love God, the more you're going to hate sin as a result. He has another one here. Um, the more we know sin, the more we loathe it, the more we know ourselves, the more we abhor ourselves. But the more we know God, the more we love him and the more we admire him. So rather than focusing on sin, rather than focusing on yourself so much, focus on God. You'll love him more and hate sin as a result. So don't get that twisted. And finally, there's a great quote, the knowledge of God humbles us. It says, we are never so low in our own eyes as when we see the most high God. I love the wordplay he has there. He, he just has a real pithy way of putting together sentences that it's just, oh man, you know, we are never so low in our own eyes as when we see the most high God. Beautiful. That is just a brief overview of Swinnick and how the Puritans thought about God, okay? That was maybe like, you know, the Cliff Notes version, 20 pages, about, you know, 200 pages. Uh, he has a ton of application where he ends with all this stuff. If you like this and you want more of it, obviously I'd recommend this book. The other thing, if you guys have heard of, have you guys heard of The Existence and Attributes of God by uh, Charnock, Stephen Charnock? Uh, Crossway Publishing actually just came out with a two-volume reprint. Now, granted, this is not for the faint of heart. It's like 1,500 pages, but it's going to be gold, okay? But they redid it where they modernized the language. So if you're like, I, I just, I don't want to beat my head against what is this guy trying to say? They updated the language, okay? That is like the definitive volume of Puritan theology on the doctrine of God. And you'll see how they apply it. It's never just a dry, you know, okay, let's learn about God. Like, it's how do you live that out, Okay. Uh, the Existence and Attributes of God by Stephen Charnock. C-H-A-R-N-O-C-K. And again, that's Crossway Publishing. Real pretty. It's like fake leather. It's a really nice book, too. So even if you don't read it, just put it on your mantle. Uh, it's really pretty. Okay. Book giveaway, The Incomparableness of God. Right here. Right here. No, no, right here. She got it. Okay. Next week, looking at Communion with God by John Owen. So we're finally getting into, if you thought this was good, oh, John Owen, yes. Uh, John Owen next week looking at communion with God, remember? This is what we did today, pretty much. The knowledge of God and, you know, by implication, knowledge of ourselves. Okay, well, now what, what do we do with that? Skill to walk in communion with God. And Owen has a wonderful book on that. That is next week. You're dismissed.